This morning I'll be reading from 1 John, chapter 3, starting with verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. My wife and I last week went and saw a movie, a movie called The Zookeeper's Wife. Some of you may have seen it. It's a film that, from what I've read, is actually a pretty true depiction of the story of this couple, which is Jan and Antonia uh, Zabinski. They're a couple that was running the zoo. Uh, Jan, the man there, was the director of the zoo in Warsaw, Poland. It was actually one of the largest zoos in Europe at the time. And it was at the time that Nazi Germany invaded Poland. And so they were running that zoo in Warsaw, uh, when the invasion happened, much of the zoo was damaged. Um, eventually, uh, the Germans actually took many of their animals off to the zoo in Berlin. Um, they lived, but again, their livelihood in many ways was taken away from them during that invasion. And then uh, Warsaw was occupied for several years by the Germans after that. So this couple found a way creatively to kind of keep their home and keep the zoo even though it wasn't really functioning as a zoo anymore. They found a way with the Germans' agreement to do a business where they could keep the zoo and keep it going. And as part of that, Jan Zabinski had to regularly make trips into the Warsaw Ghetto. And most of you have heard of Warsaw Ghetto. It was one of the most horrible places on the planet at the time. It's where the Jews were basically warehoused. Uh, they were just kept in horrendous situation. Uh, the plan was to feed them a starvation diet of 187 calories a day. That was how much they were expected to live on. A uh, horrible existence they had there. And eventually, uh, later, the Warsaw Ghetto was burned down. All those people were transported to concentration camps, uh, to the German death camps. So horrible, horrible situation. And Jan Zabinski found a way to get into there. And when he saw the conditions, eventually he found a way to begin smuggling out some of the Jews that were in the Warsaw Ghetto. And they hid those people in the zoo, some of them in their homes. Some of them stayed in their home throughout the war. Some of them were hidden in tunnels and things where they had moved animals between different places in the zoo. Many of them eventually were relocated other places. By the end of the war, 298 people lived because of them. We're still alive at the end of the war because of them. Only two of the people that they had rescued died uh, by the end of the war. Remarkable story. It's one of those stories that you hear and you watch 
and you want to leave and do something heroic, you know? You want to do something where you sacrifice and you risk something and you do something heroic because it's so inspiring uh, to see what they did. Not only the risks they took, but the results. What ended up happening because they took those risks? So many lives uh, that were saved, so many lives that were rescued from such a horrible existence because of what they did. Uh, inspiring story. So when you, when you start a sermon with a story like that, you can pretty well assume, oh no, this guy is going to make us feel guilty. We're supposed to do these horribly sacrificial things and that's what he's going to do. And maybe a little bit. That is a little bit what I want to do. I'm going to make you feel a little bit guilty. And that's because I think this passage actually tries to do that. I think it tries to stir a little bit of guilt in us. But I wouldn't say that that's the main thing I want to do. I don't want to just stir up some guilt that we should do more. Because what I know is if it's just guilt that motivates us towards action to serve the needs of others, it'll be a very temporary movement. Because guilt tends to be pretty short-lived. And guilt tends to be largely motivated by alleviating our own discomfort. We hate the feeling of guilt and we want it to go away. And so we either find a way to try and push away those things that are making us feel guilty, or maybe sometimes we try and do just enough to feel like we've kind of done something so we can now move on and look away. So guilt usually isn't the best motivator for a kind of long-term change and for real service to happen. And as I walked out of that movie, I thought, it's not really guilt that's stirring in me. It's an inspiration. It's a desire because there's, it's such a good story. I want to be part of a good story. And I think that's a little bit what's happening here in this passage in 1 John. Little guilt being stirred, but we're also being reminded that we have an opportunity to be a part of something remarkable. That we have the opportunity to do something so incredibly good. And it's to inspire us to do that. So the writer of 1 John starts in what seems like kind of a strange way. He talks about Cain. Really what he's doing here, it seems, is he's contrasting two ways of life. So he talks about this way that he calls the way of death. It's the way of Cain. Cain becomes a representative of it. And this way of death is a way that's about murder, that's about selfishness, that's about envy and hatred. Cain represents that in his actions. And then on the other side, there's this other way, this way of life. And this way of life is about generosity, it's about care, it's about love, it's about sacrificing for the sake of others. And Jesus Christ becomes the representative of that way, the way of life. John Stott, the former pastor of All Souls Church in London, wrote this. A person's life is his most precious possession. Consequently, to rob him of it is the greatest sin we can commit against him. While to give one's own life on the, behalf, on the behalf of another is the greatest expression of love for him. This then is the ultimate contrast. Cain's hatred issued in murder, Christ's love in self-sacrifice. Do you hear that? Both ends of the spectrum. Christ and Cain. This is the path that we end up walking if we turn away from God. This is the path towards God, the path of Christ. And the, the writer of 1 John seems concerned about helping us make sure that we're on the path to life. He wants you to feel sure of that. He wants you to feel confident that you're on the right path, that you're on the path to life. Because who wants to be on the path to death, right? So we want to make sure you're on the path to life. And he tells you to make sure you're on the path of life. This is what you can look for. Because if you're on the path of life, it means that God dwells in you because that's the only way to this path. 
It means God's Spirit dwells in you. So if you're on the path of life and God's Spirit dwells in you, then love also dwells in you. If you want to know if you're on the right path, then look at yourself. Is love here? Does love dwell here? But he's even a little more specific. He kind of keeps narrowing it a little bit. He isn't just saying love, because that's pretty easy to go, yeah, I, I feel good things towards other people. I love. And he narrows it a little more. He doesn't just say love. He actually says love for your brothers and sisters. He kind of narrows it some more. Say, do you, do you love others who share this love for Christ? Do you love others who are followers of God? Do you have a love for them? Um, matter of fact, if you look at most of the passages in the Old and New Testament that talk about caring for people in need, not all, but many, many of those that talk about caring for people in need, whether it's caring for the prisoner and the sick, whether it's showing hospitality towards the stranger, whether it's even loving the widow and the orphan and caring for the poor, most of those actually, if you look at the context, are talking about caring for people in the family of God. It's talking about how we respond to others who are followers of God. Uh, today, it's about how we respond to others who are Christ followers. Most of those passages actually are talking about care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so he says that, which again is a little bit disturbing when you hear that. It's like, is all we're supposed to do is care for each other? Is that where it's supposed to stop? Well, that's not where I'm going to stop, but let's start there. And the reason I think he asks us to start there is because it is the most basic thing you can do. If God dwells in you, if the Spirit of God is in you and love then dwells in you, the most basic thing, the most obvious test to see if you're on the right path, if, if you're on the path of life, how do, you, how do you treat one another within the family, within the family of Christ? Do you love one another? Do you care for one another? Say, well, of course, I care about others who are in the family of Christ. I love them. Well, he narrows it a little more, makes it a little more specific. He tells us a little bit about what it means actually to love. When he says love, he has something very specific in mind. And what he has in mind, he says, is most perfectly displayed in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, in his sacrificial love for us. That's the kind of love he's talking about. It's a lay-down-your-life kind of a love, he's saying, that ought to be in us if we're on the path of life. Verse 16 says this, We ought, ought, you hear that word? That's that little bit of guilt in there. Oughts always come with a little bit of guilt, right? You should do something. You ought to do the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to, towards others who know God, to live a lay-down-your-life kind of love towards them. We ought to have that. If it's not there then we ought to ask some questions. Is God in my life? Or have I some way pushed him away if he is in my life? Have I turned my back on him in some way? We ought to ask some of those questions because if God's there, it should be there. But then he narrows it a little more because most of us, to be honest, probably are never going to be asked to um, give up our life, to literally sacrifice our life for someone else, especially a brother or sister in Christ. We're probably never going to be asked to do that. So, as long as I'm ready to do that, if I'm asked, I'm okay, right? But he kind of explains a little more. Now he broadens it a little bit. Kind of says, no, this lay down your life kind of love, it also looks like this in verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? If you, if you see someone in need, a brother and sister in need, and you have no pity on them, then you ought to be asking questions. Where is the love of God? What has happened to it? 
C.H. Dodd, I love this quote from him. He said, love is, will- is the willingness to surrender that which has value in your own life to enrich the life of another. That's what he's saying here. It's something that actually matters to you, that you care about, and you're willing to sacrifice that, to give that up out of the love for another, out of the care for the needs of another. That's what real love looks like as he explains it and expands upon it. Now, I'm not saying here, and I don't think this passage is saying, that it means that uh, we can solve every problem, that we need to give up everything we have every time we run into a need, that we never have to be concerned about our own needs. I don't think it means that uh, somehow everybody has to have equal amounts of stuff. I don't think that's what's being said here. What is being said here is, how can you, if God is in you, see a brother or sister in need and not be moved by that, not care about that, and not want to do something about that? And it goes on beyond just saying, not just care about it, not just feel some empathy for them. But in verse 18, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So this lay down your life kind of love is a love that is a truthful love. And by truthful, I think it means here it's sincere. It's not something we do, because you know how you can do lots of good things, and it's really not so much about the other, because I want to be the good guy who does good things. And I like that. Or maybe I can do it, and it's really not, again, so much about the other. It's just I feel bad, and I want the feeling bad to go away. So it's not so sincere care for them. It's I just want to feel better. You say, no, it ought to be true. It ought to be motivated by a sincere concern for the other. And I think that true can even go beyond that. If I truly care about the other, then I want to understand the other. I want to know something about them and their need. I don't want to just act and get it over with. I want to, I want to know them. I want to care for a real person, a real person who has real needs, a real person who has real things to offer back, a person who has resources also. I'm not the only one that has those. I want to, I want to love out a truth, which means a good understanding of myself. I'm someone who has resources to give to meet their needs. I'm someone who also has needs that maybe they have resources to meet. I want to, I want to love in a way that's true, but I also want to love in a way that acts, that doesn't just think about good things and understand. And You know how we can, we can see these problems and these needs in our world and we can all talk about them, reflect on them, read great stories on them and feel really good because we're not those people who ignore those things and then do nothing, do absolutely nothing. I used to uh, be chair of the missions committee and one of the things I used to say to the missions committee I was always concerned about was short-term missions because I think they're a wonderful thing to do. I think it's wonderful to participate in short-term missions. But a lot of research on short-term missions says that people, one of the main arguments for doing them is people will go, they will see the needs in other parts of the world, they will care and they will come back, and then they will be more responsive to those needs. A lot of research shows that's just not true. People come back and do nothing. They go, they feel really good about it, they do something for a week, and they come back and change nothing in their behavior. So I've always said to the commissions committee, if we're going to do these, if we're going to invest in these, then we need to make sure we're thinking about how to do them in such a way they actually help the people there, but also truly change the people going. That we actually want to do something beyond just something we feel good about, right? Want real change. Action. He's saying this is the kind of love that doesn't just feel, doesn't just, isn't just sincere, but it acts. You see the same principle repeated a chapter later in 1 John says this, 
Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought, there's that ought word again, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I love that phrase. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. It's kind of a strange statement, like his love was ever incomplete. But his love is never meant to go to you and stop and reside there. Never. His love is always meant to go to you and then go from you to others. It's never meant to stop. It is bigger than that. It's always meant to be passed on. We are meant to receive that love, to know that love, to embrace that love, but never to hoard it, never to keep it from others. That's how powerful that kind of love is. So by everything I said, I think most of you probably agree, it is really good as Christians that we love others who know God and follow God. That's a really good thing. And that's the kind of love that is a give-away-your-life kind of love and a sacrificial kind of love. And that's the kind of love that, again, is more than just feeling some things. It's, it's based on truth. It's a sincere love. And it's a love that acts. It's a love that does. And it's a love that meets material needs and cares about those things. Not, again, just feel something for somebody. It's not just about words. So we'd agree, within the church, Christian to Christian, we should be loving that way. And after I talked about this in the first service, uh, Berta Chopepte, who was sitting up here in the second row during the first service, she came up to me in tears and said, I just want you to know, just this last week, I experienced that kind of love. That her sister came here from Venezuela, had great needs that because of her sister uh, unexpectedly moving here from just the very difficult situation in Venezuela. And she said, my women's Bible study here at the church just came and met every single need. Said, without me even having to hardly say anything, every need was met beyond what I could imagine. Thought, yeah, what a great story. That's what the church ought to be, right? We ought to be the people who we see those things and we can't help but act. We can't help but move because the love of God is in us. To live fully who we are, we have to. That's who we are. So in the church, of course that should be true. But this is kind of missions, a couple of weekends, so you probably suspect I'm not just going to talk about in here, what we do with one another. Because I absolutely think Scripture teaches we are to take that love then that we, that we give to one another the most basic, obvious thing we should do. And we take that then, that love, and let it continue on. And we love those outside the family of God. We let that love that we so embrace and so enjoy pour beyond us to others. Because that's how God's love is always meant to be lived out. You see it in the Old Testament. Uh, where Israel often sinned, where they were often condemned, was because they would hoard the blessings instead of inviting others into them and passing them on. And as the church, we're always in danger of doing that too. A couple of passages, I think, say that more than any other. Uh, Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Care for one another. Of course you should. If you're not doing that, then you're not even doing the most basic thing. But do good to all people. 
Of course we want that to be. If this is good, if this is what we're made for, if this is who God is in us, then of course we want people beyond just us to know that, and we want to take it further. Another passage, Luke chapter 10. This is the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember the discussion that led up to it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. If he would have just stopped there, he'd have been okay. But he didn't. You answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And he's not that different than us, right? He's somebody who, you know, it is, it is such a big task. When I think of the needs around me, the people in need around me, the people in my world in need, and especially as communication has changed and all, and we can know about needs across the world, it just feels so overwhelming and so big. Help me narrow it down. Help me make it smaller somehow because I want something I can feel good about and I can accomplish and I can complete. Well, I want to tell you, we don't need to complete it. We don't need to finish the task. It's one of the blessings we have. But Jesus Christ tells us a day is coming when he will return and he will set all things right and all things will be made the way they're meant to be. That will not happen until that day. Our part matters. We don't have to bring completion. We simply have to love. That's all we have to do. I can't love people in every single situation. I can't solve every problem. I can't. But if love dwells in me, if it defines me because it is, it is the God who is in me, then why in the world do I want to hold it back from anybody? In every situation, what we're called to, whether within the church or outside the church, is do good, love, spread more. And it's the kind of love that's a give your life away kind of love and meets the needs of others kind of love and, and loves in words, but also loves sincerely and with action. Of course you want to love. Love is what we're called to. The needs are great. They really are. They can be overwhelming. But to tell you the truth, our resources are pretty remarkable too. So here's a few statistics for you. The poorest 40% of the world's population accounts for just 5% of global income. That's shocking, isn't it? 40% of the world lives on just 5% of the world's income. The richest 20% of the world's population accounts for three-quarters of the world's income. And most of us here, most of us are in that 20%. So most of us are in that 20% that we actually, just 20% of the world's population lives on 75% of the world's income. The top 20% of the world's population consumes 86% of the world's goods. In 1820, the gap between the richest and poorest countries was 4 to 1. In 1913, it was 11 to 1. And by 1950, it was 35 to 1. In 2002, the gap was 75 to 1, and it continues to grow. And that's not just globally. If you look in the United States, the gap between the have and the have-not is continually getting bigger. Now, there are lots of different ways people collect these statistics and they argue about what's accurate, so I don't care about these numbers. But what everybody agrees on is the gap is getting bigger, however you go about figuring it. We have a lot. We have a lot of material. We've been given a lot. Um, we have great opportunity because the needs are also incredibly great. 
I don't think we need to all feel guilty we have, that we have blessings. That's really not something I'm trying to make you feel guilty about. But I do want you to stop and reflect upon the fact it is a great opportunity. We really do have many times much more than we need. And there are those in need. And we have an opportunity to step in and do something that actually matters, to care about it, not to solve it, but to truly care about it. Now, it's tempting sometimes, and I find myself doing this when I feel overwhelmed by the need and kind of just wanting out. It's tempting to kind of think about what I have and kind of be like, yeah, I have, but you know, I kind of deserve it. I kind of earned it. I've worked hard. What I got, I deserve. And, and again, I, I got nothing against you saying you've worked hard, you've earned things, you've done things that matter, you've been responsible. That's wonderful. But I think it's also good to stop and remember that Boy, there's a lot in there that had nothing to do with my efforts. There always is a lot there. Um, for instance, I, I may have worked hard and earned things and, you know, got education so I could get the job I have. But to tell you the truth, I had the opportunity to get education. All my life I've had the opportunity to get education. It's been available to me. It's been made available to me. Uh, even, even when I got out of high school, a lot of it was grants and scholarships and things that were made available to me. Lots of blessings that came my way. There were lots of times when, honestly, I couldn't make it, when I'd stumble and fall. And I had lots of people around me who lifted me up, who would support me and encourage me and pull me out of a hole that I had fallen into. I, I had lots of people that if, if they hadn't been there, I don't know where I'd be today to pull me up out of that hole. I grew up in a situation where I had safety and security. I didn't have to invest tons of my energy in my own survival. I just didn't have to do that. I was secure. Life was pretty safe. I had people who cared about me and loved me and taught me and supported me uh, in doing good things. Had lots of, and that list could just go on and on and on. I grew up with people coming to me constantly with the gospel, telling me about Christ. No matter how many times I kept turning my back on it, they kept coming again and again and again. Incredible opportunities I had to hear that message and to respond to it, despite my rejection of it so many times. When I really stop and think... My blessings go beyond just the material things I have. I have all kinds of resources available to me that I receive, but also that I can give. Those are blessings. And people's needs go well beyond just material poverty. There's poverty of power and purpose and dignity. There's poverty of opportunity. There's poverty of support and loving relationship. There's spiritual poverty, the need for relationship with God. We have resources that we can step in and care for those needs. This isn't just about guilt. There's an ought in there. But beyond the ought, there is a what a remarkable thing that I can actually step in and do something that truly makes a difference in the life of another. I can do it right here in this community. I can do it with people across the world today. I can do that, and it matters. can't solve it all, but I can do something that matters. I can, I can take that most powerful thing we have that lives in us and pass it on to others, which is love. What a remarkable thing that we get to do that. So I want to leave you with just three words, maybe three things to remember. First is gratitude. I think it is good just regularly to stop and, and just kind of do a little bit of inventory, maybe even daily, not, not a complete list, but just think about it every day. Just what are some of the things that are just blessings that you enjoy? What are they? What are some of the things that are your resources, things you've received and you've been blessed with? Give thought to it. Truth. As you see people in need, 
instead of just looking away or telling yourself you can't do anything or just feeling guilty and trying to get it over with as quick as possible, before you do anything, stop and be curious. Try to know the other person in some way. Give them at least a moment's thought. Who are they? And one of the things I think we ought to be thinking about often is just this person is a person in need. I see that. But they're more than just a person in need, right? I think one of the things we often do that harms others is we see them only as a project to be solved. They're always more than that. They're a person who has need. They're also a person who God, in many ways, is blessed, and they have resources too. I want to see both when I see them. I want to understand them. And I'm a person who may have resources, but guess what? I'm a person who also has need. Many times when I've traveled with groups, so like when I've gone to Ghana or southern Mexico or out to the Lummi Reservation with groups of people, uh, one of the things I find is I may have a, a material wealth that many of the people I'm with lack. I may be able to meet their needs with some material things. But I often find many of the people I've gone to see have a wealth in some other things that I lack. Sometimes they have a wealth in relationship, in the way they live with each other, that I just don't enjoy regularly. I mean, it's, you kind of envy. I, kinda, I remember coming back with a group of high schoolers from southern Mexico one time, working at an orphanage and just horrible poverty and difficult situations these kids were in. And we did a debriefing thing on the way home, asking kids kind of about their experience. And what was funny in the debriefing, our high school students, they were all a little bit jealous of the kids there. As they kept going around discussing, there was, you could hear jealousy in all of their responses. It wasn't because of their living situation. It was hard. But it was because of the way they were just connected with each other, the joy they had with one another, the ability to really enjoy small things. There was actually kind of an envy for some of it. They had some wealth to offer us, just like we had some to offer them. Consider the people that you are with. Know them. And finally, act. Action. Think, what can I do? I can't solve it all, right? Can't solve all the problems. That stops us so often. I used to love this uh, poster that Compassion International had. They're one of those groups, Christian groups, where you sponsor children in different countries. They had a poster uh, that they used to have out that had, uh, I don't know, probably a hundred little people on it, you know, drawn people. And above every one of those people were one of those voice boxes that came out of them. And in every voice box it said, what can one person do? You know, so there's a hundred little people saying, well, what can one person do? One person can do something. A hundred one-persons can do even more, right? We can't solve it all. We're not asked to. We don't, we don't take away all the problems. Christ is going to do that. We absolutely can step in and bring love. And love changes everything. That's not just a corny phrase. It truly does. We have the opportunity to do that. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that we can love. We can love because you first loved us, because you poured your love into us in that most remarkable way of sending your own son to die in our place. Father, I pray that we would not hoard that love, that we would not just keep it to ourselves, that we would embrace it, that we would know it's there, and we would be quick to share it with others. In your blessed name, amen. Will you please stand as we respond in worship?